Uh, give us open hearts, open ears, and an open mind to hear the word that you've given to Joe today. Father, we love you in the name of your son. Amen. And you may be seated. She's, that's a, that's a double meaning cry. She's upset that worship's over and really upset that I'm about to preach. So there's a little going on there. My name's Joe Davis. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to see you guys today. We're continuing in our series on 2 Corinthians. And uh, before we get started, I want to ask, how many of y'all ever see my Sunday sermon previews? One, two, Good. So they're on Facebook, they're on Twitter, and you put them up there. And so this week, my, my sermon preview was, Guilt is Powerless to Transform a Soul. Now, be honest. What was your first thought? Can't wait. Can't wait. <laughs> yes, right. Pastor Joe's going to tell me how to get rid of my guilt. I don't have to feel guilt anymore. I don't have to think about the fact that my guilt is powerless over, you know, no transformation from guilt and there's no value in guilt, right? That's probably what most of you were thinking. Well, you'd be thinking wrong. That's not the subject of the sermon. Your guilt, I mean. Because this week's passage is actually about confrontation. And what our motives are when it comes to confronting people. Do we want them to change? Or do we want to inflict pain on them and make them feel guilty? See, what I was really talking about is the fact that if we want people to change their behavior and change their actions, then it's not going to happen by us making them feel guilty and when we confront them. And this is really what we're talking about. So the fact is, if your first thought about guilt was myself, in reality, you need to hear this sermon. So how many of you thought it was about your own guilt? Raise your hand if you saw it. Oh, none of you, of course. Oh, no, I was thinking of others. Oh, <laughs> right. Okay. Let's look at the passage. Joy and confrontation is the, is, the, is the sermon title. I'm going to read verses 8 through 16 of 2 Corinthians 7. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, he's talking about that middle letter that was stern. He called it a stern letter. It was a very uh, indicting letter. It was very pointed, and it was very important that he, that he write it, and it was something that was not... Uh, all roses. It was kind of harsh. I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief, in other words, guilt, produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I write to you, it was not for the sake of of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of those who suffered the wrong, but the reason I wrote, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boast I made to him about you was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting about you 
before Titus has proven true. Everything we said was good about you. Don't worry, Titus. They're going to hear you. They're going to receive you. You're going to be blown away by how mature they are. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. That's pretty cool. So let's look at the, the, what we do is we break it down three ways. History, what about man, what did he do? Theology, what about God, what did he do? And then the devotional, what am I supposed to do? <clears throat> I want to talk about Paul's courage in this. He references that stern letter again, and he recounts his reasons for confronting them, how he felt about it at the time, and how their response inspired him. First of all, he was hesitant, yet resolved. He says, look, I regretted sending you the letter, but I didn't regret it, but I did regret it. In other words, he's saying, I was really nervous about this. Because he realized in writing this stern letter, he was risking a relationship for their benefit. He was nervous. He was anxious. But at the same time, he had confidence in the God in them. How do we know that? He says, look, and when I sent this letter with Titus to deliver it to you, I was bragging about you. Titus was a little nervous. He was thinking, you know what, Paul, they're not going to like me. And you've seen what the other people in the town have done to you. I'm a little scared. Titus, don't worry. I know these people. I believe, I'm nervous too. I hate having to write this letter to confront them. But just wait. You're going to love it. <clears throat> this was a result of Paul's belief in God's sovereign will in his people. He, ex he had expressed this before, by the way, in other places. In Philippians chapter 1, 6, here's what Paul says about the Philippians. And he surely believed this about the Corinthians because it was the same God, the same gospel. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. As nervous as he was, he knew that it wasn't about him. It was about God in them. So first of all, he was hesitant yet resolved. And then we see this rejoicing in their repentance. He was so excited about the fact that he had written this stern letter, a letter that did not sugarcoat anything, it didn't leave anything out, it was very thorough, very comprehensive, with specific instructions, and all these things, and they received it, and they changed their behavior because of it. And he says, I'm rejoicing in other words, your repentance has filled me with such courage and such encouragement. And when he wrote this, he really did have a bigger picture in mind. What he, he says is, I didn't write to you about the person who was wounded or the person who did the wounding. That wasn't really the purpose of this. The purpose of this letter was for the benefit of the whole church. He saw past the individual circumstance, the individual event, the specific conflict. He realized this is much bigger than the conflict. This is back to the root causes of the conflict. He realized his job was not to scratch an itch or to put a Band-Aid on a wound, but to find out why the wound kept reoccurring. He had a bigger picture in mind. His flesh wasn't motivated to call out one specific thing. His heart was encouraged and resolved to make sure that he did what he needed to do as a church planner, as a pastor, as a shepherd, to take them from one place to another. His goal was repentance, restoration, and confirmation. What he had been saying about them to Titus the whole time was true. 
He saw this as an opportunity, this stern letter that he calls it, this harsh letter as an opportunity for a greater goal. He had no interest in winning a debate or venting his frustration. And then the last thing about this confrontation is there was joy and comfort at the end by their response. I mean, their response brought joy and comfort. Joy and comfort that they were children of God, that they would listen, receive, and heed. Titus, listen, man. You will love them. They will receive you. You will see their openness, their tenderness, their maturity, their humility, their charity. You will see this for yourself. Paul, this is a stern letter. This is harsh. Are you sure with all the stuff you've been dealing with with these people, there are people in town are attacking your credibility, whether or not you even have the right to be there. They're attacking the gospel. They're attacking all of us. <clears throat> and you want me to take this letter to them? Are you sure? Titus, listen, I'm nervous too. But I have confidence that God will complete his good work. Just wait till you see it. It's a great example about how I feel. I'm going to give an example about one of our own in church, Marshall. Some of you guys know Marshall. If you're lucky, some of you don't, but you're also lucky. And so let me give you an example of Marshall. This is, Mar this is great. So this is how Marshall is, right? So, so Marshall is a very demonstrative, expressive person. He's not a quiet, reflective type like me. He's a very open... <laughs> So sometimes I might go to Marshall and, you know, I got to confront Marshall or something. Hey, Marshall, listen, here's what's going on. And, and Marshall could react in a defensive way. That's not right. That's not true. I disagree. I disagree. And, you know, very, very demonstrative, very passionate. And then I'll come up with another point. And he'll say, listen, that is a great point. <laughs> and it's the things, one of the things I love most about Marshall is he receives correction with the same passion that he might defend himself. And it confirms to me that God is at work in Marshall's heart and life because most people his age don't want to hear the negative. And Marshall will hear it. And he'll respond to it. And that's exactly the way Paul was feeling about the Corinthians. Look, they're not perfect, but I promise you, God is in their heart and life, and they will hear it. So that's the history with a little modern-day example. Now let's talk about the theology. I want to talk about Paul's results. When the confronted and the confronter are in step with God, his truth and his spirit, the right kind of confrontation can be a powerful catalyst for growth, for intimacy, for healing. And using this example of Paul and Corinth, we see several results that are outlined in this passage that God brings about. Understand, this is God bringing about, not the Corinthians, not Paul, but God bringing it about. The first one is what Paul calls godly grief, a fantastic concept. As in comparison in this passage, he compares it to worldly grief, which brings what he says is death. So for the sake of argument, we're going to call godly grief conviction and worldly grief guilt. It's a big difference. And what the scripture teaches us here is Paul's confrontation of them brings about a godly grief in the Corinthians. Not guilt, not worldly grief, but godly grief that says, you know what? Paul is right. This is not in honor. The way we're conducting ourselves is not in honor of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the gospel. We need to adjust. We don't have to feel guilty because we put it under the cross. We move on and we're done with that. But now 
We don't have guilt. We're motivated by our godly grief. And then it reproduces this repentance without regret. That's what Paul says. You had repentance without regret. See, enlightenment and understanding brought about this repentance. And there's this transparency and openness, which he calls earnestness. He says, your repentance brought about earnestness. And he says here, he speaks hypothetically, you have done so good. You were so motivated to clear yourself. In other words, you were so motivated to change the way you were compared to what I had described in my stern letter. You were so motivated. You were going to stop at nothing. You were earnest in your actions to clear yourself. And then he speaks hypothetically. What indignation? What fear? What punishment? And he says, you have proven yourselves. In other words, your faith has worked itself out with fear and trembling. So there is no need to even think about punishment. Separation from God. Isn't that great? And then it brings about after godly grief and repentance without regret. God does this. He brings comfort in verses 12 to 15. See, Paul was motivated to prove their faith was real. And their response brought him comfort and confidence in their connection with Heavenly Dad. And their affection for Titus, the messenger, was fantastic. They didn't shoot the messenger. They embraced him. See, I bragged to Titus that you would receive him warmly. How our relationship was solid because of Christ even though everyone around you has been trying to turn you against me, I knew you would not. That's pretty amazing. You know what else God does? Brings confidence. In verse 16, their response to Titus and the content of that stern letter has caused Paul to have unwavering confidence in their faith, in the God in them. I know that you're going to hear And then lastly, you know what God does through this confrontation? He brings motivation. He says, you had an eagerness to clear yourselves, an earnestness. I love that. The confrontation gave them motivation, not defensiveness. Hey, we got some music going on there. I was going to dance, but I don't think it works. You don't want to see me dance during a sermon. It's not not this type of church. All right, so let's go to the devotional. There are two types of confrontation. Talking about you now, what are you supposed to do with this this week? About how guilt is powerless to transform. Because, you know, in reality, confrontation can be the catalyst for healing and for joy. Or it can be a catalyst, confrontation, for guilt, destruction, and damage. Yesterday, I was coming back with with Chad... To Dora, and I was coming out on 41, and one of my staff members cut me off. Mm-hmm. I had a choice to make. Could have been vicious confrontation. Or I catch up. You're fired! Only the senior pastor cuts people off in this town. No, I'm just kidding. It's kind of funny. 
we caught up and we were laughing and they were laughing back. It was kind of cool, but you can see how vicious confrontation is common on 41. <laughs> but see, vicious confrontation is the fun one. This is the one that we post on Twitter or Facebook. Has anyone seen so-and-so? Let me tell you who they are. They are, uh, and this is what I'm going to do. You know, you, I've seen that. Or maybe vicious confrontation, that's the way I look at it, you know? <laughs> oh, snap. That's what vicious confrontation is. Like, I'm going to tell them, I'm going to snap. It's selfish. Vicious confrontation is ungodly. It's mean. It's vengeful. It's venting, it's attack mode. It's seeking to wound people emotionally. In other words, to bring about worldly grief. And the desire to confront people in this way is overwhelming. Sometimes, I'll be honest with you, it's greater than my drive to eat. <laughs> in fact, if you're honest, okay, I'm going to... I have this fantasy about... This is back before Grace Life, right? But I have this fantasy of being able to go into a church meeting and just vent to everyone in that meeting. Here's what you do wrong, here's what you do wrong, here's what you do wrong. And so we actually fantasize about vicious confrontation. Boy, if I could just get my, if I could just speak my mind to this person one day, what you're really saying is if I could do it without consequences to myself and really make them feel really bad, this would be so much fun. <laughs> but it's motivated by anger to get in there and declare the truth, oh snap. To see the target of your vicious confrontation buckle under your boldness, your intellect, and your righteous judgment. That's vicious confrontation. It's the type of confrontation we revert to most often. We want to inflict what this passage calls worldly grief or guilt. But the problem is, church, guilt is powerless to transform Powerless to resolve a conflict. Because we see guilt is powerless to transform a soul. It's powerless to restore a relationship. Listen, the other day, you owe snap on me. I love you. That's not what happens. I'm going to owe snap on you. Just wait. We call that in the business of reverse owe snap. Guilt is powerless to bring joy and confidence. Vicious confrontation is powerless to bring joy and confidence. Because the person's not going to be transformed. You're not going to believe in their character more. But then there's another type of confrontation that we want to talk about. And it's called virtuous confrontation. It's selfless, motivated by love, reconciliation, and healing, and growth. It's firm, but gentle and humble. In, Gen in Galatians 6, 1, Paul says, <clears throat> Brothers, if anyone is caught in any sin or transgression, you who are spiritual true to restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And Philippians 2, 3 is really good, too. Philippians 2, 3 says this. It says, Do nothing... From selfish ambition, personal fulfillment, that's what that means. Or conceit, or arrogance. But in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. It starts from a position of humility, love, 
and concern, not anger and desire to snap. And frankly, it's frightening for a host of reasons. <laughs> we don't fantasize about this one, right? Our tendency about this type of conversation is really not to fantasize about it, but to dither. <laughs> yeah, I got to do it, but uh, I'm just going to let it ride. <clears throat> you, we don't sit there and think, boy, I cannot wait to in vulnerability and in humility and in brokenness, go to my brother and sister in Christ and in love, share with them my heart so they can respond with joy and affection and repentance. Boy, I just can't. One day I hope that happens. We don't fantasize about that one. But I can tell you, if you're a little nervous, a little apprehensive, it might actually be virtuous confrontation you're considering and not vicious. It could be that your confrontation has the goal of godly grief and not worldly grief or guilt because godly grief is powerful. It's powerful for comfort and affection. Paul says that. It's powerful for inspiration in verse 14. Inspired by their, their spiritual maturity. I mean, it takes maturity to respond well to confrontation. It also is powerful for rejoicing in results that verify God's presence and God's hand and God's power in a life, not just theirs, but yours as well. So my question is, which is more often your temptation? To oh snap? Or oh love? See, I think this is important, right? So I'm almost done. Just kind of track with me. I think it's important for us to understand as a church that if we are going to continue to grow together, there has to be a lot of virtuous confrontation. And that only happens when we have vulnerability, trust, one of the reasons I can talk to Marshall like that is because I've known him for a long time. He's seen me in sin. I've seen him in sin. Not as much as he has seen me, but I've seen him in sin. And so one of the reasons that we can have those type of conversations is because we have a relationship and our common bond is not in our music. His music is terrible. <laughs> the TV shows he watches are horrible. But our common bond is in the gospel. When you have a common bond in the gospel, it gives opportunity for virtuous confrontation like the one between Paul and Corinth. And I would venture to say that there are many times, many people who had to go to Paul in virtuous confrontation. Paul, you're being a little harsh on Peter. And there is no letters about it, but my, my thought is that Paul probably was inspired and motivated by the response of the Corinthians to hear this confrontation and respond the way they did. When you go to someone and they hear you and they're humble about it, what does it do to you? Anything you want to tell me? I'm all ears. There are some people who've earned the right with Pastor Joe to come right up and say, Joe, I got a problem with this. Marshall's one. Dylan's one. Many of you in this room are one. Not all of you. Some of you don't even think about it. It's just a joke, people. Just 
If you have a problem with me, email me at meganmooney at hotmail.com. Just email me. <laughs> My hope and prayer today is that you will reconsider each time you're thinking about a confrontation. And you'll be able to take the tools I've given you today and determine, is this vicious or is it virtuous? Because guilt, worldly greed, is powerless to transform a soul. Dad, we're so thankful that because of our common relationship in Christ and the gospel, we have an opportunity to do something the world doesn't understand, which is virtuous confrontation with the goal of repentance and restoration and joy and humility and intimacy. God, I pray that you would continue to help us be ever mindful of the type of confrontation that we're considering at every moment. Keep us far away from vicious confrontation, as fun as it is, as, enjoy, as, as much as we might enjoy it, keep us far from it because it never results in transformation.